Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Since the beginning of this church year, we've been focusing primarily on epistle readings, at least when I preach. And one of the themes this year has been the story of the gospel, the story that the epistle writers are telling us about who we are and where we're from. For there to be a story, you have to have a plot. And for there to be a plot, you have to have a beginning, a conflict, and an end. In our society, one of our problems, one of our problems is that we have lost any sense of beginning and end. If you know where something starts, you know where it should end. One of the problems with the modern person is that we're told there is no coherent beginning and therefore no purpose, no end for our lives. If our lives are inherently meaningless, then it's up to us to make up our own meaning. And this is quite the wager that the modern person is willing to make. Because if our life has no coherent beginning and end, then sure, we're free to make our own meaning. But what if there's something outside of us, outside of our world, that has placed an inherent trajectory, an inherent meaning in us? If that's true, then making our own meaning really poses a danger. Namely, we risk losing what it was that we were designed And this tension, I think, is at the heart of our James reading this morning. It's fortuitous the way that the church calendar fell this year because two Sundays ago, we celebrated the feast of St. Philip and St. James. And on that day, our epistle reading was James 1, 1 through 16, which treated resisting temptation and exhorted us to follow the gospel even to death. Today's reading picks up where that reading two weeks ago left off, covering James 1, verse 17 to 21. Here, James continues to talk about the Christian life. And I'm going to suggest that in order to fully understand what he's saying, we need to read the reading backwards. But before we do, I want to ask a question. What is the purpose of being a Christian? If it's true that God is our creator and the point of our existence, what can we say is the primary objective or the main reason for being a Christian? There are a lot of bad ways to answer that question. Some people will say they're Christians because they see religion as an effective way of perpetuating their socio-political agenda. This is a thinly veiled form of political idolatry. Others might say they're Christians because the church is a nice social club to join. The problem with that is that you can find better social clubs. And that's also not what we're about. Fellowship is integral to the church's mission, but that means something much more than being a member of the Moose Lodge or the American Legion. Still, others might say that the purpose of being a Christian is to get out of hell. Well, it's true that to be a Christian is to be saved, saved from separation from God, but is, this, is the purpose of the Christian life just fire insurance? I think it's about something deeper than that. The reason to believe the purpose of being a Christian was summarized by the 4th century Christian, St. Athanasius. He said, God became man that man might become God. Now, the point he's making is not that we become some sort of demigods 
like you might find in Mormonism, or that we get absorbed into the divine essence and cease to exist, like in some Eastern religions. But rather, the point is that our human nature was united to God in the person of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and those of us who have been baptized have been transferred into Christ and inherit eternal life as a result. Now, eternal life is one of those tricky words because we think of being on a cloud with a harp forever and ever and ever. But eternal life speaks not only to the quantity of life, but also to the quality of life. It's not just about how long we live, but the kind of life we live. So the Christian life then is about what we might call theosis or becoming like God. And there's actually a part of our liturgy that speaks to this, though it's probably a part that you all miss on a week-to-week basis because it's done quietly. While the priest is setting up the altar, he pours the wine into the chalice, and then he blesses the water, and he pours it also into the chalice. The water is reminiscent of baptism, or what some have said is humanity-seeking God. And the wine, of course, represents the blood of Christ, the price God pays to redeem us. So as he pours the water and wine together, the priest prays quietly, by the mingling of this water and this wine, may we come to share in the divinity of he who humbled himself to share our humanity. We are brought into Christ, and in being in him, we become like him through the work of the Holy Spirit. Think for a moment about metal that's put into a fire. What happens to it? When it's in the furnace, it begins to heat up. It begins to glow. It doesn't become the fire. It still remains itself. It's metal, but it burns hot and it becomes transformed by the fire. Similarly, God's holiness is a fire. And when we are put into that furnace, we begin to glow. We begin to become transfigured by his holiness. And so the point is this. Christianity is about following and becoming like God. This process of theosis is very much like tending a garden. What's the first step that you do when you want to plant a new garden? For me, it's reconsider. However, (laughs) if you decide to go through with it, the first step is you need to clear the land. You remove the weeds and the brambles and the junk so that you can till. When the soil's been tilled, Then you can sow the seed, and then you nurture the seed until it becomes a plant, and you continue to nurture it until it bears whatever crop it is that you're growing. The soul is very much like a garden. We're clearing it of weeds and brambles, our sins, and we're planting and tending to the virtues. So the first step is setting aside, according to James, setting aside anger and filthiness, and as the King James says in one of its great lines, the superfluity of naughtiness. The NRSV actually continues using the gardening imagery, calling this the rank growth of wickedness. So the exhortation against anger, I think, is very important for us who live in an outrage culture. While there are some biblical precedents for a kind of righteous anger, it more often than not frustrates our pursuit of holiness because anger can be the sign of a diseased mind that lacks control. Further, we're told to put away filthiness, the lusts of the flesh that weigh our souls down and make it disordered. So we are to cut back this rank growth of wickedness, put away the superfluity of naughtiness, and turn away from evil. 
Turning away from evil means turning towards something else. But what is it that we should turn towards? James tells us the meekness of the engrafted word, which is able to save our souls. But what does this look like practically? Well, if you're reading backwards, for James, it's threefold. It means being quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Being quick to listen means more than just hearing. It means actually acknowledging that the other person has something to say. It's an exercise in humility because you're acknowledging that the other person isn't someone to be dominated, but to be heard. And of course, to listen requires us sometimes to be quiet. We don't always have to speak. And of course, James tells us as a result, we should also be slow to anger because his vision for us is self-mastery, which frees us up to do what God wants us to do. So James wants us to become good by ridding ourselves of anger, of filthiness and malice, so that we can embrace this posture of being someone who's quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. And James gives us these instructions because he's aware of who we are. He says, towards the beginning of the reading, we are those who he begot with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. The church is the vanguard and agent whereby God brings about his new creation, where he brings life to a dying world. And we are effective agents and ambassadors of his kingdom precisely because of what God has done in us. We were dead in our trespasses, but are now raised to walk in newness of life. And this tells us a pretty significant thing about who God is. James begins the reading by saying, Every good and perfect gift is from above, and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. This week I learned the important lesson that being a father is hard because we are subject to our own passions. So Jude was perhaps, we could say, uh, being a little bit difficult and annoying. And I found myself lashing out too much because I was changing due to my circumstances. What a contrast between humans, bad human fathers, for example, and who God is. Because there's no changing in God. There's no variableness. God is goodness itself, and he can't change who he is. He doesn't change based on what we do, which is why we can say that his property is always to have mercy. There's a great comfort in this. God doesn't change even when we do all the horrible things that we do. Now, this, of course, is not license for us to go do more horrible things. Actually, quite the opposite. It's an impetus for us. It's why human anger is so ungodly for James, because it makes us unstable. It makes us determined by our, con- our circumstances, whereas God isn't controlled by circumstances. And so when we, who are hidden in him who doesn't change, encounter shifting and evolving circumstances, we know that we can be rooted in something more stable, the unchanging nature of God, because circumstances will always change. Our collect of the day mentions this as well. But God and his life-giving word do not. And so underneath it all, James is calling us to have an active 
faith, a faith that fully trusts God, that cares for others despite evolving circumstances, that seeks his holiness above all things. Because we know that God is faithful and our lives should reflect the fact not only that we understand his faithfulness because of what it's done for us, but also that we are becoming more faithful like him. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.